Well, can I hear you make some noise if you're excited to be in church today? Awesome. I am so glad, so grateful to be here. This church, this place has changed my life forever. And so it's such an honor to be here with you today. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, my name is Joe. I'm one of the pastors on staff with our Elevate City campus, but enough about me. Um, if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, um, I promise not to judge you if your Bible glows, okay? Uh, go ahead and open it up to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. At Elevate City every single Sunday, uh, as we dive into God's word, this is one thing that we say together. It says, we are people of a book. Our understanding of God is not shaped primarily by experience, tradition, popular opinion, culture, or what we're comfortable with. Our understanding of God is shaped by the word of God. This is our first source, our final authority, the greatest love story ever written, and the best part of it all is true. Can I get an amen? Amen. Well, today we're continuing in part three of this series that we're in, what everyone's talking about. And through this series, we want to see what Jesus has to say about the hottest topics of our day. And I want to start by just reading Ephesians 4 over us. Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul, he writes this, starting in verse 11. And he says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge, someone say knowledge. knowledge, knowledge of the son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. Today, if you're taking notes, you can go ahead and write what everyone's talking about, deconstruction and doubt deconstruction and doubt. We wanna to look today at what Jesus has to say about doubt and deconstruction and what to do when you find yourself having questions in your faith. And so I wanna start by just talking about what is deconstruction? Uh, roughly speaking, deconstruction is simply the dismantling of anything that's been constructed. constructed. So in architecture, for instance, deconstruction looks like the Georgia Dome just being blown up, demolished to make way for the Mercedes-Benz Stadium. In my house, deconstruction looks something like my son Hudson spending an hour or so crafting and building this beautiful spaceship out of his magnets on the floor, only to have his sister Hadley come running in and knock it all to the ground. See, deconstruction um, can describe so many different aspects of everyday life, but since the 1960s, it has meant so much more. Deconstruction is now more broadly applied to literature and philosophy, representing the dismantling of traditional cultural values, norms, and ideologies. It's most notably known through the French philosopher Jacques Derrida. For Derrida, he advocated that there is no meaning outside of the text of a philosopher's written work, that there's no absolute truth, there's no true meaning, there's only the writer's construct of meaning and truth that's represented in the text that they wrote. This has contributed to the rise of what's called postmodernism, which basically says that you can't know stuff. 
There's no meaning. There's no absolutes. There's only your lived experiences, a belief only in the self, which leads to people living their truth. Christianity, I need you to know, is utterly and, and totally incompatible with postmodernism. As we talked about last week, if you missed the message by Pastor Aaron, you got to go check it out. But last week we talked about how you can know stuff. You can know truth. Truth is found in Jesus, in his teachings, in his ways, and in his word. The Apostle Paul, he writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy, and he's talking about what it looks like when people abandon godliness and abandon God altogether in this pursuit of just knowledge. And this is what he says of those people. He says, they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. As one of your pastors of this church, I want to be clear that this version of deconstruction is not a healthy or a helpful practice to engage in. It's anti-gospel and it is anti-truth. That version leads you to worshiping and finding the God of self, the God that agrees with everything that you believe, but is void of any truth or power to transform your heart and save your soul. Paul, he writes on to his protege, Timothy, again in, in 1 Timothy 6. And he says, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He says, guard, watch, fight for your doctrine. It is no joke. What you believe about God drives and dictates everything else in your life. The theologian A.W. Tozer is known for saying that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. This term deconstruction, it's not just a buzzword around certain circles of evangelicals, it's become a culture-wide phenomena. It, many would say it's even a movement with hundreds of books and podcasts and social media accounts devoted to and entire organizations even devoted to the work of deconstruction, specifically even evangelical deconstruction. And you don't have to look far to find articles about former Christian authors or celebrities or music artists or pastors even that will share their stories of deconstruction or even deconversion how they've become enlightened in this new age postmodernism movement. It's been connected to this new term called exvangelicals or the exvies, which is a social movement of those who have left evangelicalism all together. There's trending hashtags like empty the pews and many others that are associated with this term of deconstruction and these movements. These ideas are getting retweeted. They have permeated into the worldviews of so many millennials and Gen Z and even older generations today. These ideas are talked about in coffee shops and in college classes and all over social media. A.J. Swoboda, he's an author, theologian, professor in Oregon. He pastored in Portland as well. He says, being post anything is now a sign of arrival and maturity. He says, rethinking is valued over remembrance. Innovation is valued over continuity. Truth established over a long span of history matters little in the chronological snobbery of the digital age. Now, here's the thing. I get that in this room, there are people from varying different backgrounds and people who have different perspectives when it comes to this idea of deconstruction and what it is and what it's not. Some of y'all are like, I've seen that word on my TikTok before. I feel like I've read an article about it before. And then some of y'all are like, what is TikTok? I'm not on there. 
what are you even talking about, Joe? Where are we going today? So you may not have even heard of any of these terms, but what we need you to know is that these conversations matter because it matters when it comes to equipping your kids or your future kids or your grandkids today in the conversations that they're having and that people around us are having about faith. And then there's also chances that in here in this room today that there are people and you would say, yeah, that's me, Joe. I've been there or I'm there right now. Or maybe as I'm talking, you're like, that's my daughter. That's my son. That's where they're at right now. Barna did a study in 2019, and according to their research, they say that 64% of U.S. 18 to 29-year-olds who grew up in church say that they have withdrawn from church adult involvement altogether as an adult after having been raised or active as a teen or child. See, faith storms are real. They're real, but every storm doesn't have to end in a shipwreck. Deconstruction doesn't have to end in devastation. Deconstruction is a process, but deconversion is a result. And it doesn't have to be the end result of your faith or the faith of that person that you love so deeply. See, before we dive in, I want to put this disclaimer out there. We're not talking about this today to scare you, but to prepare you. That these words and this topic of today, I want to approach with scripture and with grace and with wisdom. That this message is birthed out of a burden to see a generation and future generations process doubt and questions with Jesus and in his word and by his spirit and with his community, not apart from him. And so no matter the phase of life that you find yourself in, we can all be honest and say we've all had questions about our faith. But many of us, we don't feel like we have a safe place maybe to ask those questions. And so what happens is that we or someone that we know chooses to look outside of the church, to look outside of the Bible, to find answers to the questions that we all have, all while feeling the pressure and the weight of culture and the world around us that is telling us to reject orthodoxy, reject absolute truth, and find a faith that feels right to you and is accepted by your lifestyle and by our culture. And on my study in this subject, one of the most helpful resources that I found outside of the Bible is this book by A.J. Swoboda, who I just referenced, and it's called After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. I would encourage you to write that down. I've got this copy right here, and I would love to give it um, to one of you in this service today. At the end of the service, I'll be down here, and if you've, you find yourself in this place or you've got a lot of doubt and questions, I would love to give you this book today. AJ, he writes in this book, he says, the question of today is are we going to listen to what God has to say, or are we going to make God into our own image? In other words, are we gonna choose to love the God we want or the God who is. See, this idea of deconstruction isn't actually a new term. It goes all the way back to the garden, back to where Adam and Eve lived in the garden called Eden, and they walked with God, and they talked with God, and they had this perfect community and harmony and relationship with God. But then one day, the serpent, the author of lies, he approaches Adam and Eve, and he places this seemingly small thought into Adam and Eve's mind. And in Genesis 3, 1, he says, did God actually say? Did God actually say? And the serpent was asking Adam and Eve to deconstruct the very things that they knew to be true. 
He caused them to question everything that they knew to be true about who they were and their identity in God and to question and start to deconstruct the very goodness and the very nature and the very heart of God. And that deconstruction in the garden led to the very disaster and devastation and pain that we see today through this thing called sin. Sin. Theological deconstruction is simply the process of dismantling one's accepted beliefs. So the question is then, like, why do we see this rise of deconstruction today? For the church, I believe that much of it comes back to us not choosing to not follow the great commandment and the great commission that Jesus gives us as followers. In Matthew 28, we see the great commission And it starts in verse 16, actually, and it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But some doubted. Listen, doubt is inevitable. There is no vaccine that you can get. There is no mask that you can wear to keep you from catching a case of doubt. It is real. If it can happen to one of the 11, it can happen to you and it can happen to me. But notice what they did with their doubt. They worshiped in and with their doubt. They didn't run away from Jesus just because of their doubt. No, they chose to worship Jesus in their doubt. And then Jesus says this in verse 18, he says, all authority. Someone say all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I think one of the things that we see today is that we have a problem with authority. For millennials and Gen Z in particular, everything is about power and authority. And we've seen it abused and misused, and we struggle to trust authority. Even for many Christians today, we don't see uh, the Bible as our authority any longer. What we do is we see influencers as our authority, or Fox News, or CNN as our authority, and we look to textbooks and Facebook and anywhere else other than here so many times to submit to authority. See, the challenging of authority is not new. In fact, our entire country was based off this idea. Do you guys remember learning in history about no taxation without representation? This challenge of authority. Jesus, here in this moment, he's reiterating that he has the final say, that his words are true, and that if his words are true, then the word is true. The Bible is true. And if the Bible's true, then we have a responsibility to teach it and to obey it and to follow it. Notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to like everything that I've commanded you to do. He says, I want you to follow, to obey, to believe. In John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I think another issue, a problem that we see today is that there's a lack of discipleship from the church. That for too long, churches have focused on everything but discipleship. Like maybe you grew up and you were told, okay, you just need to pray a prayer and then you're good to go. Peace out. Maybe come back if you want, but you don't really have to. But Jesus says, go make disciples and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. 
See, we need to teach people to know Jesus and to follow Jesus and to lead others to do the same. And obedience and holiness shape a strong faith. There's also the great commandment. Remember when Jesus says, hey, what's most important is to love God wholly, to love people sacrificially. See, many have lost trust in spiritual leaders or the, the church because they've been turned off by the hypocrisy of Christians by clergy scandals, by harsh and legalistic teachings, by the history of the church, by the inappropriate marriage between the church and different political parties or traditional culture. And so for so many, they start to label the church as not a safe place to process doubt. And so rather than go into the church with their questions, they just go online instead. See, I need you to know no matter what you see on Instagram that you can trust spiritual leaders today, you can. In Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews, he says, have confidence, he's talking about spiritual leaders, in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Another reason why we see this rise of deconstruction, I believe, is because of wounded hearts. The saying is true that hurt people hurt people. And much of the stories that I've heard of deconstructionists uh, seem to be this, seem to have this deep wound that is at the foundation of so much of their journey. And so I want to talk for just a moment about this idea of church hurt. It's this popularized phrase, and I want to acknowledge that yes, people have been hurt by leaders in churches. Abuse is real. Hurt from Christians is real. Pain is real. The pressures of legalism and bad religion is real, and it really all is heartbreaking. But we need to cry. We need to mourn. We need to seek counsel. We need to pursue healing. And then we need to seek reconciliation, and we need to forgive. And we need to call people to do the same. And I don't want to just like brush over this because I realize how real it is. And, and so if that's you and you haven't talked to anyone here, like we would just love to open up the conversation and invite you into a conversation. Tell us so that we can see how we can help and come along with counseling because it is so real. But what I never hear in all these discussions or rarely hear in these discussions around church hurt is people naming the specific people who hurt them. What so oftentimes happens is we just throw a blanket of blame over the whole church and say it's their fault, it's the church's fault. And instead, what if we started to be specific and name specific people or specific places instead of place a label over the totality of the bride of Christ? The church, it's led by imperfect people, many times broken people. It can be messy, but it doesn't change the fact that it is the bride of Christ, that Jesus' bride doesn't deserve our blame. Jesus bled for his church. He died for his church. He rose for his church. He established his church, and he is fighting for his church even today. And so if that's you, one of the questions I want you just to maybe start to ask is, hey, have I started to throw a blanket of blame? Have I sought help and healing and forgiveness? We'd love to walk with you in that. In the medical community, there's a unique kind of disease. It's called iatrogenic disease or infection. And it's a disease or infection that you actually get from going to the hospital. I find it strange 
that in the case of you choosing to go to the hospital, that you may actually get sick from the very place you went to find healing. And so should we stop going to the hospital? No, the church is like a hospital for the sick and for the broken. Every single one of us, we were handed the gospel, handed the truths of Jesus by an imperfect community. And so I need you to know that you can and you should, and we all should process our doubt with Jesus-centered community that believes in you and for you when you cannot and do not understand what to believe anymore. And just because you're having doubts, I need you to know it doesn't mean you've lost your faith. It doesn't mean that you have to leave the church. In fact, doubts and questions can be the very proof that you need to help remind you that you actually have faith. See, for so many people, deconstruction can seem like a reaction or a rebellion or a response simply to the pain of their past or an all-out rejection of the customs and the, the foundations that were built from their upbringing. And so that being said, there are several brilliant theologians and pastors and thinkers who would advocate for a different version of deconstruction. One that doesn't dismantle historical Orthodox Christian beliefs, but instead deconstructs the cultural and religious ideals that were harmful and had no purpose to begin with. One that doesn't look to TikTok influencers or to distort the very truths that have been agreed upon by New Testament endorsed godly spiritual leaders for thousands of years. In simple terms, a better version of deconstruction is to use scripture to critique the world's corruption of the church rather than the other way around. See, a better deconstruction uses, recognizes that parts of our beliefs are not actually biblical and we need to seek to align them more with the Bible, more with Jesus to live and look more like him. Second Thessalonians, Paul says this, he says, so then brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. I wanna ask you a question. Have you ever torn down a wall before? Anyone ever torn a wall down before? You just like smashed it, ripped through it. Okay, well, I've got this sledgehammer right here. And uh, several years ago when Leslie and I bought our first house, we bought our house and we had to do some work to it. We had to do a little renovation to it. And one of the things that I thought was a selling point for the house was that the previous owners had built a wall in the garage to break the garage in half and add a fourth bedroom. And one of the problems, though, was that that fourth bedroom was always hot, it was smelly, bugs got in it, and it was just terrible. And so what happened was, because of this wall, we never used our garage, and we never used that room. It was useless. And so one day, I was like, why is this wall here? Why don't I tear it down? And so I grabbed a sledgehammer, and I started to just smash it. Y'all, it felt good. It felt very good. Like, if you've never torn down a wall, I would, it's, it's fun, Okay. And, and I made a huge mess and it was awesome. But what happened though, is I had a sledgehammer in my hand. And so I left the garage and I started to walk around my whole house, looking at every wall in my house. And I was like, can I tear that down? I wanna tear that down. When really there was just one wall, one wall in my house that could or should have been torn down in that moment. You know, I think we can all learn so much from the great theologians of our day, Chip and Joanna Gaines. <laughs> Any fixer-upper fans in the house, anyone? Yeah. What do they do? What's their mission? What do they do? They go into the best neighborhood and find the worst house and then transform it into their client's dream home. 
But what do they do before they ever even pick up a sledgehammer and start to tear down the walls? Because they tear down a lot of walls. What do they do? They have a plan. They have a strategy. They have a purpose in what they're doing. They never just start just demo without plans of what they're removing, what they're restoring, and what they're renovating. See, there's some things in our faith or in our lives that, yeah, it's time to pull out the sledgehammer. Things that are not of the Bible, that are not of the ways of Jesus, that, that maybe we're just there because of some cultural norms of the day. Yeah, we need to tear some of those walls down, the walls that are hurting rather than helping in that moment. But what I want to advocate for is a different kind of deconstruction, one that looks more like this. This is a hammer. Didn't know that. Notice that a hammer has two sides, one for building, one for removing, tearing down, one for taking things out, deconstructing, one for building back up. And what happens when people hold a hammer, what a hammer requires precision. A hammer requires purpose and intentionality. See, people with a hammer, what do they do? They measure and they calculate and they remove and then they re construct. See, in everything, when it comes to our faith, we need to have a plan and a blueprint, a map, a guide. We don't just go around smashing walls because we got a sledgehammer in our hands. See, that's, this is how we should approach this idea of deconstruction, that we remove what's not of Jesus. And we start to restore what's maybe been broken hurt or people, and we need to renovate the things and purify things with the word of God. See, Paul calls us not to aim our deconstructive impulses at the orthodoxy of the way of Jesus, but at the ideologies of the world. Developmental psychologists, they talk about this three-stage process for development, which includes three stages. The first is construction, construction, where in our childhood or our family of origin, we are handed or been given a worldview to be built upon. Like for Hudson and Hadley, my two kids, I got a picture right here of them from Halloween. You can say, aw, they're so cute. And for them, one of the things that they are asking all day, every day, one question, what does that mean? Hey dad, what does that mean? Hey mom, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? And like it can become so repetitive and one of the things I have to remind myself of constantly is that I don't want to answer that question flippantly. I don't want to just like push that question aside because they're asking very important questions. And what myself and my wife Leslie and I have to remind ourselves of is that every single day, what we're doing by answering those questions is we are building a foundation for them to build their life upon. And we're crafting and constructing and building the ideals and the beliefs and the faith that they will build the rest of their life on. They're not silly questions. They are great questions. And it is is meaningful and it really does matter to build our faith because we know that if we're not building that into them and if we're not speaking truth into their lives, the world will speak its truth, media will speak its truth and they'll build their life upon shifting sand. 
And then at some point, what these psychologists would say, we enter into a deconstruction process where we realize some of the issues or problems of our worldview, and we start to ask questions and doubt and probe and search for answers and truth, and it's kind of like that eat the meat and spit out the bones kind of process. Like for you, if you grew up in church and you had to wear a tie to church, and maybe you didn't like wearing a tie to church, and one day you get old enough and you read the Bible and you're like, God wants my heart? He doesn't care about my tie? And you're like, okay, I don't need to wear a tie in church anymore. And you start to remove that because it's not meaningful. It doesn't matter. And you start to find a place where you feel like you can come and, and build your life upon Scripture See, in that process, though, we shouldn't start just ripping out every wall that we think feels right. We shouldn't just tear down everything and, and without a biblical foundation and a blueprint to build the rest of our lives on. Because how else will we discern what's right and what's wrong? See, for too many people today, we just equate with who God, who God is with just our feelings about God. Well, how I feel about God, that's who God is. But our emotions cannot be, our faith cannot be built solely upon our emotions. Like we cannot build a faith on emotion and then wonder why it's so easy to just deconstruct. It's a house built on shifting sand. Our emotions, they matter. Yes, they truly do matter, but they shouldn't be the truest thing about us. They should be hitched to scripture. They should be built on and submitted to the word of God. See, the danger of deconstructing our faith is knowing where to stop. Like how do you know when it's time to put down the sledgehammer? How do you know when it's time to stop dismantling truth and, and we get so caught up in our emotions? Like when you hand someone a sledgehammer and an emotive to swing it, like everything starts to look like a target. Just for me, I just want to tear down different walls, but we can't stay in demo mode. Demo mode is holding a sledgehammer with us every single day. See, the problem is that when we doubt today, we don't know how to have a patient kind of faith. A faith that waits and truly seeks answers. So many of us, what, what, what we have to ask ourselves is, hey, am I just projecting this? Is this just an agreement that I've made? Is this something that's good, seemingly good, but I don't know to be true? And what we need to do is learn to doubt our doubts and ask ourselves in the middle of every journey, hey, have I doubted my doubts yet? Have I sought them have I asked these questions with patience and perseverance and brought them to biblical community? Have you asked the Holy Spirit to speak in the middle of your doubts? So many of us, we just start to doubt and we forget that God has given us a helper, his Holy Spirit to walk with us. Jesus says, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. He promises to be with us so that we don't have to doubt alone. We come to him, we talk to him, we start to question and doubt our doubts and say, Jesus, will you speak? Holy Spirit, will you tell me what is right and what's true through your word? See, critique can be so easy and so infinite, but building back requires intentionality. And so deconstruction should always be followed by reconstruction. We start to rebuild a worldview that's based on the Bible and the best wisdom and practices of previous generations. I love how John Mark Comer, he says this, he's an author and speaker. He says, billions of people have done life before us. We don't have to start from a blank slate we don't need to destroy everything, wreck our marriages, wreck our faith and our families and everything good so that we can figure out for ourselves what's right and true. 
Other people have made those mistakes, so we don't have to. We can build on the past based on what's been purged and purified with the convictions and teachings and ways of Jesus. We live in a world that's so obsessed with just new, like we're going to discover some new truth. And it's, we're just searching and critiquing and being skeptical just to search for some new meaning. But new doesn't mean true. It doesn't. Real truth always stands the test of time. And anytime we try to pick and choose which parts of God we like and which parts we don't like and which parts we want to follow or not follow, it ends in disaster. In 1 Timothy, Paul, he writes, he says, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He is an unhealthy He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, and evil suspicions. He uses harsh words because this really does matter. I've got a picture of Thomas Jefferson's Bible up here. If you notice something that's very sad and he's cut out different pieces of the Bible, it's cut and chopped all the way through it. And Thomas Jefferson, he was known as a deist. He believed in a God who created and then just stepped away. He didn't believe in miracles. He didn't believe in the power of the Holy Spirit or the supernatural acts of God. And so he cut out every instance of a miracle in Scripture, even the resurrection. He had the most depressing Bible ever. And he started to print it, and it was known as the Jefferson Bible. And one of the things is that he cut out all the parts that didn't fit his cultural narrative. He cut out all the parts that he didn't agree with or didn't fit his beliefs and what he thought to be right. And many uh, deconstructionists today would point to the evil that's been done in the name of the Bible, like, for instance, slavery in America. But the reality is that slave owners, they didn't read the whole Bible. They, like Jefferson, also cut out and omitted parts of the Bible that didn't fit their likings. And they were called slave Bibles. And they were chopped up and then passed out because the slave owners wanted their slaves to have Bibles because they knew it gave them inspiration and hope. But they cut out entire books like the entire book of Exodus, which tells the story of how God wants us to find freedom and to be freed in him. And what the slaves didn't need was a deconstructed Bible. What they needed was the whole Bible that the whole Bible would confront their slave owners for their evil, that they were using their privilege for evil. So they just chopped it up. There's a Catholic theologian who said, slavery didn't end because people stopped reading the Bible. Slavery ended because people finally started reading the Bible. See, the whole world needs the whole Bible. The whole Bible, not one that just fits the cultural narrative of today or is palatable for the postmodern era. Yes, there's been hurt from leaders or people that have claimed to be Christian, but the issue is not the whole Bible. The issue is when people choose not to follow what the Bible teaches in its totality. The issue is when we start to pick and choose what we think is right and what feels right to us and what we're going to believe is sin or not sin, rather than just trusting in the total narrative, the total truths of the totality of God's word in Scripture. In 2 Timothy, 
Paul continues on in chapter 4, 3, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's happening today. It's not a new thing. It's been happening for a long time where people want to change their view of who God is based on their own personal agendas. And so we see today that the world and culture wants us to bend the Bible to fit the narratives of the day, but we don't do that, Stone Creek. We are people who bend culture and our lives around what God has to say, not the other way around. We choose to worship the God who is, not the God that we want. And so what if there was a way to question your faith without losing it? I believe there is. See, we see stories in the Bible, like stories like Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a recovering religious leader. And what did he do with his questions? He came to Jesus in the middle of the night and he said, how, how, how can one be saved? And Jesus met his questions with grace and with truth. So one of the things we need to learn to do today is identify the questions that we have and then bring them to Jesus. Think about where you can look for biblical answers. Go there. I want to give you three resources that have been so helpful for me when I have questions and doubts and need clarity from the Bible. Gotquestions.org is a resource that is so helpful. Just look up your question in there. Karm.org is another resource. And then Bibleproject.com. What they do with Bible Project is they help people experience the Bible as a unified story that points to Jesus. For Thomas, another story, he had doubts. He was one of the disciples. He was missing when Jesus first appeared to his disciples after the resurrection. And so he chooses to doubt. He's got questions. He's got, he, he wanted to see Jesus resurrected, but he didn't. And so he started to doubt. But what does he do? He comes back to the people that had faith and he comes back to Jesus's followers and friends and he's there and Jesus appears to him again. And what happens in that moment is that the reality of the resurrection changed everything for him. And now his doubts return to belief because he rose, I will believe because he's alive, I will believe. And so what happens in that moment is we see that the resurrection has the power to overcome so many of our doubts and questions, everything. Jesus really did rise. He really rose from the grave. And if you've never taken a deep dive into the evidence for that reality, then I would encourage you to do it. You'll find overwhelming evidence that Jesus really did actually rise from the dead. Over 500 people, eyewitness accounts, firsthand accounts, testified that they saw him alive, risen from the dead. And they gave their lives standing on that truth and that reality. And then I wanna encourage you with your questions, come back to Jesus again and again and again, looking for him over and over. Jesus in Matthew 11, and he tells us in verse 28, he says, are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. 
and our questions just come to Jesus over and over. See, the world doesn't need to lose their faith. There's a way to journey through the valley of doubt and deconstruction into the oasis of life that is Jesus Christ. And so my encouragement today with our questions and with our doubt that we would come to Jesus with our doubts, that we would look to Jesus in his word, that we would be with Jesus by his spirit and we would come to Jesus in his church together. Let's pray.